This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to San Francisco City Insider, the San Francisco Chronicle podcast on the people and politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and I'm here today with Chase Bodine, a candidate for district attorney. He's an attorney in the public defender's office with a life story worthy of a movie. We're talking today about what he'd do about the city's biggest problems, untreated mental illness, open-air drug dealing, car break-ins, and more. He also makes a mean loaf of sourdough bread, but more on that later. You might hear Yoshi James, our photographer, snapping pictures and eating bread. I'll be right back with Chase Bodine. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, I've started each conversation with the candidates for district attorney with a two-minute biography, but your life story could be like an entire movie. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> I uh, thought it was definitely worth more than two minutes. Um, so let me see if I have your story right. When you were a baby, your parents were left-wing left radicals in the weather underground and took part in a robbery outside New York City that ended in the murder of two police officers and a security guard, and your father is still in prison. Your mom was released 22 years ago. Um, you're right. My mom, up to the very end. My mm -hmm. mom did 22 years she in prison. She did 22. I she got was it. released in 2003. Got it. And you were raised in Chicago by other Weather Underground members, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, and they ended up adopting you? Uh, that's right. Mm -hmm. And what did growing up with incarcerated parents teach you about the criminal justice system, and how does your unique childhood inform your candidacy for district attorney? You know, my earliest memories are going through prison gates to visit my parents. Um, I've been visiting them in jails and in prisons my entire life. And so, you know, most people who work in criminal justice get interested in that field in law school or after. Uh, for me, this has been a lifelong passion. It's mm -hmm. been something that's dramatically and profoundly shaped really every moment of my life and something that I've been working on um, since I was a child. I, I started writing letters to prison wardens advocating for policy reforms when I was literally 10 years old. Mm -hmm. What are some of your memories of what it was like to go to prison as a kid? Because you were going there probably since before you can even remember. That's right. Um, I don't remember my first visit, but my earliest memories are getting searched, going through metal detectors. And one of the things that stands out is how uh, overwhelmingly black and brown the communities that are mm -hmm. incarcerated are and the people who are in line to go visit were almost all uh, black and brown women and children. Mm -hmm. And many of the friends uh, that I made in prison visiting rooms um, ended up incarcerated themselves. And mm -hmm. so I had this awareness from a very early age of how lucky I was, despite this horrific tragedy, that my parents had brought on me and so many other families 
uh, of how lucky I was to have landed in a stable family that uh, raised me in a way that made it possible for me to end up at a place like Yale. Uh-huh. And what do your biological and adoptive parents think of you wanting to be San Francisco's district attorney? You know, you'd have to ask them. I think like <laughs> most parents, they're you know they're proud of their kids and uh-huh. they try to be supportive. Uh-huh. Did you talk about it with each of them before deciding to run? I did. Yeah, yeah I did. And I, probably the most difficult conversation was with my uh, biological father mm-hmm. uh, in his prison visiting room. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's really proud of the work I do. I think he trusts my values and my work ethic the way most parents, you know, would trust their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he also sees the horrific violence uh, that occurs in prisons mm-hmm. on a daily basis. And so he's both acutely aware of the need for effective law enforcement to, to protect people from that violence and also the ways in which our current approach to criminal justice actually perpetuates crime and violence. Mm-hmm. And um, your movie-worthy life continued beyond your childhood. Uh, you were a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, went to Yale Law School, interned at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, and got a full-time job as a defense attorney there. I, I wasn't an intern. Oh, you weren't? No, I was a fellow. Which okay, a fellow. Very different. I was, a, I was handling a caseload. I, I did nine jury trials during that year. I was wow. funded by Yale Law School. Oh, okay. And I was launching the immigration unit at the public defender that year. Okay. Thanks for the correction. Sure. Um, why as a public defender do you want to be district attorney? Often those are seen as like opposing um, positions. So why do you want to go from one to the other? Well, I think, you know, it's it's uh, it's actually pretty common sense when you think about it. You know, the, the very best advocates are ones who understand what's going on uh, across the aisle. And so you think about the most expensive – um, criminal defense attorneys, and they're all former prosecutors. You know, when when they're high-profile corporate uh, criminal defendants, they hire people to represent them who have experience as prosecutors because they have relationships. They understand the steps that are being taken uh, across the aisle, and they're ultimately often more effective. And in this case, I'm the only candidate um, in the race who actually works currently in San Francisco's Hall of Justice. Mm-hmm. Got many years working with everybody on all sides, judges juries, public defenders, private defense attorneys, prosecutors, police, sheriffs. And I think those relationships, that experience, and that perspective, both as someone who's been directly impacted by incarceration, as well as who's seen what the process is on the other side, is going to give me uh, the unique ability to make better policy and get better outcomes than we've seen over the last several years. How do you alleviate concerns among voters that you'll prioritize defendants over victims of crime? Uh, I haven't heard that concern from folks, to be honest. I think what people want is a zealous advocate who understands the issues and who's going to work hard for them. Um, I've been running on a platform uh, more so than any of the other candidates. That's a victim's first platform. Mm-hmm. I'm the only one who's committed to restorative justice, uh, who's committed to require every single district attorney to call the victim in the case within 48 hours of, of filing a new case. I think it's essential that we have a victim's first office and that we focus our resources on healing the harm that crime causes, not only on punishment. And too often victims are cut out or re-traumatized by the criminal justice mm-hmm. system. I've seen it time and time again from many different perspectives. And what I hear from people across the city is that they're eager for somebody who actually listens to them and values their experience in healing the harm that crime has caused in their life and their community. That's my promise. Um, people are really excited about it. How does it work in the D- DA's office now in terms of reaching out to victims? Um, often as a public defender, I would call a victim as part of my investigation and they would tell me they hadn't heard from anybody. Uh, sometimes weeks into a case. The policy currently is that in domestic violence cases, the district attorney assigned the case is required to reach out. But 
In other categories of cases, it often never happens. Mm. The first the victim hears from the DA's office is a subpoena in the mail. Yeah, It's really disrespectful and it's uh, really exclusionary. And it makes many victims feel like the system is not working for them, but it's using them to accomplish other outcomes. So you would make this across the board, all types of cases? That's right. Okay. Um, and you've called San Francisco's criminal justice system broken. Would you say that's a failure of the current DA's office or would you count other law enforcement agencies in that category as well? Both, for mm-hmm. sure. I mean, this is a, a problem that's much more deeply rooted than any one administration. I think it's it's a problem we see across the country. I think it has to do with the, the priorities and the values and the role the criminal justice system has served for far too long has really been divorced from public safety and from victims' rights in, in any meaningful way and been much more focused on um, – On on outcomes that are so explicitly racist Mm -hmm. and counterproductive to public safety. I mean, we we look at the recidivism rates in state prison, and it's true across the country. More than two-thirds of people getting out of prison will be back in within a couple years. So what we're doing is not working to keep us safe. It's not working to rehabilitate people. And it's not working to heal the harm that victims suffer every day in this city and across the country. The recent assault by a mentally ill homeless man of a woman near the Embarcadero has gotten a lot of attention in large part because the crime was captured in horrifying security camera footage. Is that an example to you of a broken system and what should have happened differently in this case? Absolutely. I mean, that case, it's such a sad case. It's such a scary case for so many reasons. Um, Obviously, first and foremost for the woman um, who was trying to get into her home at the end of a long day, Uh, but also because what's come out since the initial um, um, reports in the media are that two people called the police prior to that assault and the police didn't do anything. We know, everybody who lives in San Francisco knows, we have a tremendous public health crisis playing out on our streets. Mm -hmm. We see it with drug addiction. We see it with mental illness. And we're asking the police to deal with this problem. And it's not a skill set that most police officers were trained on. We need the city to take a much more proactive approach to preventing crime and to treating mental illness. Mm -hmm. What would you say is the role of the district attorney, if anything, in addressing the homeless crisis in San Francisco? Well, I think the district attorney needs to decriminalize poverty. We cannot lock our way up out of a homelessness crisis. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work. And it's it's really inhumane and ineffective uh, and a waste of money to have the jail continue to be the largest, least effective um, homeless shelter in the city. About 40% of the people in the jail are homeless or marginally housed. And that doesn't mean that none of them should be there. Obviously, when people commit crimes, regardless of their housing status, there have to be consequences and accountability. Mm-hmm. But we need to make sure that we're not locking people up simply because they're homeless. And often that's what we see happening in San Francisco. I think the district attorney has an important role to play in triaging because so many people who get arrested are homeless, are mentally ill, are drug addicted. We have this critical missed opportunity. Every one of those arrests should be an opportunity to connect people with services, with job support, with mental health services, to get them off the street and on their feet. Mm -hmm. And a large percentage of people in jail, in addition to being homeless, another bucket is mentally ill people. Um, What would you do to ensure that they get diverted into programs that help them and also keep the public uh, safe, especially with those uh, with a history of violence? Absolutely. It's a a critical issue for the next district attorney and for the Board of Supervisors as well. 75% 
of people booked into county jail are drug addicted, mentally ill, or often both. Uh And we cannot simply continue to have the jail be a revolving door, nor is it appropriate for the jail to be the largest provider of mental health services, which it is today. It's inhumane, it's ineffective, and it's tremendously costly. And perhaps worst of all, we know that we are putting people back on the street every day who are unsafe to themselves and others. Mm -hmm. So I think the district attorney has a critical role in protecting public safety and finding ways to make sure that people who are getting released from custody are transitioning to supportive supervision, care, uh, whatever is appropriate for their needs. Right now, we often have no idea who people are, where they're going, and we have this critical opportunity when they're in jail for a couple days to triage and figure out what it's going to take to get them off the street and protect the public from them and in some cases themselves Mm -hmm. from them. Would you support expanding the conservatorship program in San Francisco? So I think the conservatorship program is really well-intentioned. I don't think it's going to solve our problems. Um, The current version of it, you know, as as enacted in SB 1045, is only going to apply to about five people in San Francisco, according to all the experts uh, I've talked to. Mm -hmm. And we all know there's a lot more than five people on the streets of San Francisco who need some kind of serious intervention. So uh, I'm not opposed to conservatorship in in theory, but we need to make sure there are services available for people to actually avail themselves of before we uh, lock them up because they're not taking advantage of services. In other words, the services have to come first. Mm -hmm. Other counties in California who are obviously bound by the same state law um, are conserving a lot more people than we are, especially under the category gravely disabled, which applies to people who cannot provide for their own food, shelter, or clothing, regardless of whether they're violent. Um, Would you support conserving more people under that category in San Francisco? Like I said, I think the first step is we need the services to be available. And I think if there are meaningful services available and we're doing our job through programs like law enforcement assisted diversion, Mm -hmm. through uh, community-based partners like Glide Memorial Church, uh, through the amazing work being done at UCSF citywide, I think we don't need to conserve a lot more people. What we need to do is make sure that there are mental health services actually available to people. And then we can figure out who is it that is really uninterested in getting services without court mandate and who is it that is simply unable to get them because San Francisco is doing a bad job providing them. Mm-hmm. And switching gears, how would you make progress on the scourge of open-air drug dealing, particularly in the Tenderloin and South of Market? Yeah, it's a huge problem. And, you know, the Tenderloin is a, is a neighborhood with the highest density of schools, school children. Um, and it's a tremendously vibrant community that's being overrun by drug use and drug dealing. Mm-hmm. I think we need to understand what's driving it. And I think we need to be um, really proactive on both the supply side and the demand side. On the demand side, we need to make sure we have way more effective drug treatment programs and harm reduction approach to getting people using drugs to reduce their consumption. Um, there are people in San Francisco doing great work on these issues, Drug Policy Alliance, uh, the the lead team at, at Glide Memorial Church, among many more, felt in place. Um, we need to work with them to help reduce the demand for drugs and reduce the dependence that our communities have on drugs. On the supply side, we need to obviously do a more effective job limiting the inflow of drugs, whether pills coming from pharmacies or hard uh, illegal drugs often coming from the East Bay. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to understand the groups that are bringing these drugs in, and we need to do more than simply uh, buy bust operations on the corners. Because what we see is when police arrest a handful of people, the next day there's more replacing them. That approach has not worked. The war on drugs has been a failure in San Francisco and across the country. I think we need a different approach that focuses on uh, more sophisticated law enforcement operations, moving upstream, and understanding what's driving the behavior in the first place. About a third of the people arrested for drug sales in San Francisco, not just the Tenderloin, it's probably higher there, are Honduran young men. Mm-hmm. And we need to understand what's happening. Why is it that there are Hondurans, not Salvadorans, not Guatemalans, not Mexicans, 
who are in the tenderloin selling drugs. Many of them have been trafficked here. Others came here willingly, but now owe coyotes tremendous amounts of money. And Honduras is such an unsafe place. If they don't come up with payments, their families might be killed. That happens. I've seen cases where that's happened. So if we want to prevent people from selling drugs, we need to take a broader look at the social dynamics and the political dynamics that are driving drug sales in the first place. What did you think of the federal government's decision to ramp up its own enforcement in the tenderloin? Was it a signal that City Hall isn't up to the task? It definitely doesn't look good for San Francisco to have the federal government step in uh, in the heart of the city just blocks from City Hall um, and take matters into their own hands. I don't think the approach the federal government took will be any more effective than what we've tried in San Francisco. Um, but I do think it's something that requires urgent attention from the next district attorney. And we're going to have to work in partnership with the police, not just in San Francisco, but across the Bay Area, mm -hmm. because th these are not just local problems. They're regional. And it's really easy to see walking around downtown and the Tenderloin people shooting up on the sidewalks near playgrounds, schools. It's very out in the open. And um, a lot of people seem to think that it's just allowed and that's okay. Uh, what do you make of all of the open-air injection drug use? It, you know, it's really unfortunate that kids on their way to school have to walk past that, have to see that, that it's become normalized in so many neighborhoods in our city. And I think we need to do a much better job. One thing we could do would be safe injection sites. I think that's consistent with all the best uh, empirical evidence on harm reduction. And I think it also helps protect our communities, especially vulnerable members, from having to confront the sales and the injections all day, every day. Mm -hmm. Again, on a new topic, uh, would you have charged the officers in the Mario Woods case? It's very hard for me to comment on a specific case um, without having all the evidence. You know, I've seen the videos. Uh, I have not read all of the internal police reports. And mm -hmm. I think it's important to have all the evidence before you when making a decision as serious as whether or not to charge somebody with a crime. Um, I will say that it is shocking to me that in all of the officer-involved shootings we've seen over the last several years, um, including the Mario Woods case, not a single charge was filed against a single officer. Why do you think that was? I think there's a couple of reasons. I think the state law uh, privileges and protects law enforcement over you know, average uh, civilians in ways that made it difficult to charge. And I also think there's a real uh, failureship of independence and, and, and leadership when it comes to these issues, not just in San Francisco, but across the country. You know, we, we see um, people killed by police in situations where it should be obvious the person's unarmed and can easily be uh, contained or detained without the use of violence. And all across the country, including the Mario Woods case, we see the situations escalate by police use of force, um, not just to one shot fired, but to often dozens. And I think we need to have leaders who are independent of the police and who have the courage to file charges against police the same way they would against anybody else in that situation. Mm -hmm. There seems to be some confusion about what it means that San Francisco is a sanctuary city. As DA, how would you like to see the city handle undocumented immigrants who are arrested for serious crimes? Well, so I think you can't look at the people arrested in a vacuum from the people who are undocumented immigrants who are not committing crimes. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I think the question is well taken, but big picture, the reason we have a sanctuary city policy is not primarily to protect people who are committing crimes. It's to protect the rest of the immigrant community. And, and I'll tell you why. Let's take a, a woman from El Salvador. Um, these are real cases I'm telling you about. Okay. A woman from El Salvador who is a victim of serious domestic violence. Um, her partner is undocumented. And she fears that if she reports the abuse she's suffering, he'll be deported. And that's not what she wants for her or for her kids. And so she simply chooses not to report the crime at all. That's unacceptable. 
We need every single member of our immigrant community here in San Francisco to know that we will not discriminate against them, that we will not cooperate in their deportation, and that we have their back when they're victims of crimes. And part of that means not punishing immigrants who commit crimes twice, not punishing them more harshly than we would punish someone else. Now, we know when people go to state prison for the most serious crimes, they're handed over to ICE and they are deported. And that's a reality that we have no control over here in San Francisco. But it's essential that the next district attorney have the track record and the courage and the knowledge for pushing back on the Trump administration. I mean, we have a, a president in this country right now who is determined to use immigration and racism as a wedge to divide the country. And if San Francisco can't stand up to that and find ways to defend our immigrant community, to let them know no matter who they are, no matter where they come from, they have the full protection of the police and the district attorney's office, none of us will be safe. Mm -hmm. Is San Francisco doing enough to address its car break-in and property crime epidemic? And if not, what would you do differently? Absolutely not. Obviously not. I mean, in 2017, uh, thanks to great work by the Chronicle, we know there were 31,000 reported auto burglaries. Thanks for the plug. Uh, for sure. <laughs> I, I, it, you, it's one of the best sources of data. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we don't have as much transparency as I'd like from the district attorney's office or the courts. I think that's something we need to work on as well. But, you know, when it comes to auto burglaries, most people don't report them. I didn't report the ones that happened to me in 2017. And you yet, had more than one in 2017? I did. Yeah. I've had three total um, and two in 2017. And, you know, the, the, the frustrating thing is that of the 31,000 reported, police only made arrests in less than 2% of the cases. Mm -hmm. And this isn't about finger pointing. I think we need to find ways to work together, but we need to do it by looking at the data, right? Why is it that the police aren't making more arrests? And what's happening in the cases where they do make arrests? I mean, that's really what we need to look at. Our policies need to improve based on data, mm -hmm. not hunch or, or emotion. Mm -hmm. And so I think to, to solve this problem, we need to recognize that we have to do two fundamental things. One, decrease the number of auto burglaries that are occurring somehow, some way, and two, find ways to make sure that when they do occur, police and district attorneys are doing a more effective job holding the people who commit those crimes accountable. Um, we're not doing a good job on either front right now. Mm -hmm. What do you think the district attorney could do better since so few of the cases, like you say, are even coming to his office in the first place? Yeah. So I think the district attorney could work with the police to develop more sophisticated um, policing techniques. And, and look, you have to take a step back and recognize there's two basic groups of people committing auto burglaries in San Francisco. We see them in the Hall of Justice every day. Uh, on the one hand, you've got folks who are mentally ill, drug addicted, homeless, uh, you know, marginally employed, and who are really committing crimes of desperation and, and opportunism. For those people, we need a different approach that gets at the root causes of their crime. Hold them accountable in ways that requires them to get treatment and to engage with services that are going to change their life for the better. There's another group, though, that commits at least as many, probably more, auto burglaries in San Francisco. Folks who often come in from out of county, who work in organized teams, uh, with a driver, a lookout, a, a point person who does the smash and grab. And those are the groups that are more sophisticated and more difficult for the police to catch. I would love to see the district attorney's office partner with the police to build cases, not just based on the number of auto burglaries, but where, where we're actually taking apart the networks that create the demand for stolen goods and fence them across the state. So for example, let's take a rental car from SFO, put a laptop bag on the back seat, and leave it on Lombard Street for a week with no police officers around not even undercover. Let's let someone break in. They won't it. be there for a week. Exactly. You, a day would be enough. <laughs> yeah. A day would be more than enough. And let's see where that laptop goes. I think as district attorney, it's never going to be enough to prosecute the person who breaks the window if we're not tracing it upstream and taking apart the networks that are creating this demand. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there's been a rash of pedestrian deaths this year on the streets of San Francisco, and we're actually going backwards in the goal of reaching zero traffic fatalities by 2024 in the city's Vision Zero plan. Um, do you see a role for the district attorney to play in that problem? So we need to prevent crimes, and we need to prevent traffic fatalities from occurring first and foremost. Often by the time the district attorney gets in, it's too late. Someone's already been killed or, or, or been seriously injured. Mm -hmm. And so my goal as the next district attorney is to work with our board of supervisors, with SFMTA, with all of the other stakeholders that can play critical roles in preventing those traffic fatalities and those traffic collisions from occurring in the first place. There's a lot of obvious low-hanging fruit ways we could do it. I've biked thousands of miles in San Francisco from the beach where I live to the Hall of Justice and back every day for many years. Um, and there aren't enough bike lanes. And there aren't enough um, pedestrian scrambles. And there aren't enough speed bumps to slow cars down. And there aren't enough uh, untimed lights on the big major streets where people go way over the speed limit. Mm -hmm. There is a tremendous amount we can and should do in this city to reduce the speed of drivers, to force people to pay more attention on the road. Texting while driving is an epidemic in the city. And also with Uber and Lyft uh, dominating the roads now, we have a tremendous number of drivers who simply don't know the way around and aren't paying attention, pulling over willy-nilly, mm -hmm. picking up, dropping off. All of that needs to be regulated if we're serious about pedestrian and biker safety. The district attorney has a role, but it's only in those cases where someone has been hurt uh, or killed and where we can prove that the driver was acting in a way that was reckless or negligent. Mm -hmm. A couple of the other candidates who've come on the podcast said that in previous debates you referred to they're just accidents. They're called accidents for a reason. And you said that uh, driving under the influence is a victimless crime. Um, said that you kind of sounded dismissive on this topic. Is that the case? Absolutely not. I think that's a mischaracterization of what I said. I want to clarify that. Mm -hmm. um, on the first issue, the penal code, section 27, subparagraph 5, specifically says that an accident is not a crime. And so the challenge as district attorney when you have traffic collisions, which are colloquially referred to as accidents, mm -hmm. is proving to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that it wasn't an accident. And that's a real challenge for the district attorney's office. They don't win a lot of these cases. Mm -hmm. um, that's why prevention is so much more effective and important when it comes to traffic safety. With regard to DUIs, there are, by law, definitions of crimes. And vehicle code section 23152 is the common charge for first offense drunk driving, where there is no injury and where there is no accident. Um, so they're what we call traffic stop DUIs. Mm -hmm. um, and what that means is that the community, of course, is a victim broadly, but there's no individual person or person's property that was harmed. There's a whole other category of DUIs where someone is harmed, where there's a car accident, where a parked vehicle is sideswiped. Those are different categorically, mm -hmm. and the penal code and the vehicle code separate them. But for the ones who are just pulled over in a traffic stop and found to be drunk, what should happen to them? Well, I think we need to do a better job holding them accountable. Right now, um, those are the single most common kinds of cases that go to trial in San Francisco. And the results are embarrassing. Uh, less than 50% of those charges result in a conviction. I'd like to switch it up. Excuse me. I'd like to switch it up so that 100% of people who are arrested for drunk driving are held accountable in a meaningful way that makes it less likely they drunk drive in the future. Mm -hmm. And what would that look like? It would look like creating incentives for people to admit their responsibility early in the case mm -hmm. instead of 
the incentives they have today, which are to go to trial and have a 50-50 chance of winning. Mm -hmm. And what it would look like is partnering with Mothers Against Drunk Driving. So they do community service for Mothers Against Drunk Driving or other groups on the front lines of these issues like the Bike Coalition. Mm -hmm. And they'd be on a probationary period. They'd pay fines and fees on an ability-to-pay basis. They would um, do the DMV-required drunk driving class. And um, if it was a first offense and if nobody was injured in the case, it was just a traffic stop, and if they comply with all of that, including the probationary period, they would have a path to earn a reduction or a dismissal of the charge. Okay. How would you grade the performance of District Attorney George Gascon? In what area? Across the board. Overall grade. Oh, I'd say A-. minus. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, I think he's been um, he's been really creative with his policies. I think you know we have record low violent crime rates, and um, I, I know that the property and drug crimes in San Francisco continue to be a really big issue. Um, and I think that's where we need a lot of improvement. But the fact that violent crime rates are as low as they are, I think, is a testament to the success of some of his policies, and not just his, but the broader reforms we're seeing across the state coming out of Sacramento. Great. Well, you've survived the serious questions, and now it's time for the lightning round. Where is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? Hookfish, a block and a half away from my house on 48th and Irving. Okay. What's your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? I'm not, I'm not really a movie guy. <laughs> That's okay. So I married an axe murderer. The Rock. The right answer. The oh, rock. The Rock. Okay. I That's like The good. Rock. That's you, a good you, know, you know why? Because there's those scenes of of Nicolas Cage racing down the hills and the car bouncing, you know, yeah. up and down. And the cable car explodes. Yeah, all that. Yeah, The Rock. Where do you like to go for a stiff drink? I'm not really a drinker, um, and if I do drink, I usually do it at home. I make a really <laughs> so nice rusty room. nail. Okay. What was your first concert? Aerosmith. Where? Uh, in a suburb of Chicago. What was the last book you read? Locking Up Our Own by James Foreman, a Yale Law professor. Hmm. What is your favorite depiction of lawyers in movies or on TV? A Few Good Men. It's a good one. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> what a great moment. Cross-examination at its best. Do you hereby promise you will not blame the SFPD or Superior Court judges 100% of the time the Chronicle calls you asking about a case that's gone awry? Absolutely. Okay. That's what they always say now. Really? They just say it's the judge's fault or it's the yeah. police fault? Well, finger pointing is tried and true. I guess you know, it seems to be working for them or something. Or I don't like, think it's I working. I don't think so, yeah. So I was reading a profile of you, and you're a surfer, runner, backpacker, and traveler who's visited 100 countries on all seven continents. More than 100 now, yeah. Oh, what are we up to now? Well, it really gets complicated because it depends what how you count. So I've been to Antarctica, but does that count as a country or just a continent? I've been to you know, Puerto Rico. You can get really sensitive about does that is, – it's not really its own country, but there's obviously people who see it that way. Monaco, mm -hmm. the Vatican. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of places out there that are not technically their own country that I visited. So somewhere in the 110 to 115 range. Wow. So my question was, are you trying to become San Francisco's coolest elected official? Absolutely. <laughs> Which was your favorite country of all of those? Brazil. Why is that? Porque adoro falar português. I love speaking Portuguese. <laughs> uh, actually, though, the, the best thing about Brazil for me was I boated the entire Amazon River on cargo boats. You did? I did. And I did it um, actually in a couple different trips. So I did it in, in two parts, once from downstream going up and once from upstream going down. And it is such a spectacular part of the world in terms of culture and diversity and the kindness of the people that live there and, of course, the flora and the fauna. Mm -hmm. um, to be able to experience it that way while learning Portuguese, while making friends that have really become lifelong friends who mm -hmm. I'm still in touch with uh, was an experience that I think changed me and that I'll never forget. Wow. 
And lastly, what is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? Telling my fiance three things that she did that day that I really appreciated. Oh, that's a nice thing to do. What makes the list usually? Lately, uh, helping out with campaign stuff, (laughs) making sure I'm eating enough, um, and just generally being an unbelievably compassionate, kind person who believes in me and believes that um, I'm fighting for something that's going to make San Francisco better for all of us. Wow. And have you set a wedding date? We have. When is it? So we're doing a, a family affair in San Francisco right after the election, like 10 days later. And we're doing it in Golden Gate Park. Uh-huh. And then we're going to do a bigger uh, party with her family. She's half Chilean, half Kenyan. Uh-huh. So we're going to do a, a party with each of her families in the countries that they're from. Wow. Well, um, good luck in the race. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Enjoy the bread. <laughs> if you're wondering about the bread reference, here's the story. I invited all the district attorney candidates to show off a talent on the podcast. And Chesa Bodine brought a loaf of sourdough bread. He said he had to bring bread since he's a Bodine, even though he's not related to those Bodines. There's one. Wow. I recommend yeah. being generous with the butter, but, you know, if you're vegan, then <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to, you know, if I get that too, it's all right. Mm. This is delicious. Thank you. Yes, yeah. thank oh, good. You. You're welcome. Don't be shy about having more because I can't eat it all myself. <laughs> Here's the verdict. The bread was good. Thank you to Erica Carlos for producing this episode, to Chesa Bodine for appearing on this show, and to you for listening. San Francisco City Insider is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, please subscribe and give us a quick review wherever you get your podcasts. Support San Francisco City Insider and a lot of great journalism with a print or digital subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.